Hey folks, welcome to this new edition of the Dreamers and Doers podcast from Arieka Networks, where we invite thought leaders from all over the world for some candid and insightful conversations. For the first time in this series, we have a chief technology officer. He is a serial entrepreneur with experience in companies large and small. I did not have to look far to find this person because he's no stranger to Arieka. He's someone who I have the pleasure of working with on a day-to-day basis. I'm very pleased to welcome Ashwat Nagaraj, the co-founder and CTO of the company. In today's episode, we'll discuss the role of a CTO, how a technology vision develops, how to navigate a company through its ups and downs, then the joys of being a pilot and soaring into the sky. Ashwat, welcome. Hey, thanks, Shashi. How are you doing? Always good, my friend. So we're going to have some candid conversations. Prepare to be uncomfortable. (laughs) Absolutely. Let's go. Let's start with you co-founding the company more than a decade ago. What sparked this original idea for you? And how's the journey been so far? Throw it back a little bit. You know, we're talking about something 12 years ago, right? I left a a large company, very interesting uh, work, but, you know, sort of needed to do something a little bit more dynamic, let's say, right? Uh, Met a couple of uh, really interesting people. So, you know, when I say I started the company, really, it was three of us. One was Ajit Gupta, who was the who was the founder of uh, Speedera, which was acquired by Akamai. And uh, he came from a background where he said, we need to do things as a service. Uh, Rajiv Bharatwaj, who came from an application background, and I came from a networking and security background. And so when we met, we were really looking at some major transformations occurring at the time and how we could really use an opportunity to convert a major transformation, which could be enabled by delivering the, a product as a service instead of selling it as a box to customers, right? And there were two major trends that we saw at the time, which were really driving business. Globalization, obviously, you know, people moving manufacturing to various countries in the world, technology development moving to India and other places. That was expanding fast and really driving the world economy. And the second is a trend for people of, of large companies and small companies alike saying they needed to get to be more agile, they needed to focus less on non-core technologies and outsource non-core work. And for example, a cigarette manufacturer did not need to have a huge IT staff and run its own MPLS network with dual redundancy and so on and so forth, right? So they were all starting to say, look, let me focus on my business. Can somebody take over and run my network and provide me a high quality network as a service, right? And we also looked at the, in the global context, it also meant, you know, latencies and so on and so forth. So how do my applications behave? They used Riverbed and other good WAN optimization solutions to mitigate the issues of latency. And so we just took that problem and said, okay, let's build the next generation optimized networks as a service for these global companies. Keep in mind, this was uh, when we raised our money, it was March of 2009. That was really the bottom of the stock market. So unless you had a pretty good idea, which had some serious legs, you were not getting money at the time. And of course, you had to have the background. Ajit had you know, done well at startups, so had Rajiv, so had I. So I think all of that came together in a lot, a lot of ways. That journey has been, uh, we haven't, let's say, done 180 anyway. You kind of uh, bring about something very interesting. Even imagine that cloud wasn't a big word back then in 2009 when the economy was in the toilet, so to speak. But when you look at this original vision that you guys came and defined, and I don't know if you did it in the back of a napkin, you still have that napkin, to now, fast forward more than a decade later, 
How do you see this vision evolving? Is it still the same vision or is it a different company altogether? Absolutely. One of the key things was in this as a service and globalization and so on and so forth, the big factor that was driving change was the availability of cloud resources and applications in the cloud, SaaS and so on. So the original vision was really to transform that network to make users inside corporate networks really have access, you know, democratize access to both on-prem as well as off-prem applications with equal quality and so on, so that their productivity could go up and the overall operating costs and, and access to new applications allowed them to really modernize their business. That hasn't changed. That continues to evolve. So the overall vision, the direction of transformation from a rigid network to a very agile network, which includes the cloud and, and data centers and users at home, has evolved, but it's conceptually, it has not changed very much, right? I mean, conceptually, it is simply the migration towards the cloud. There have been a couple of points of inflection. One is security became a bigger part of this transformed network that started probably about four or five years ago. And uh, the next big one was, you know, with COVID, home users became as mission critical to a company as people sitting in, in offices, right? So minor transformations of concept of who is included in this global network, but our vision's generally the same. The trend is the same. Yeah, it, it looks like, you know, there was a well-thought-out vision, which has really had the staying power and the long legs in an industry that is really moving very fast. If you look at it, 10, 12 years, as you mentioned, is a very long time for a quote-unquote startup as well. Many companies either get acquired or even more go bust. How have you kind of preserved this vision in a way that the company gets its longevity? In fact, a, a former employee I spoke with recently said, and I quote, Aryaka is incredibly resilient. And uh, that's a huge compliment. What do you attribute this to, Ashwa? So, you know, uh, a whole bunch of things in that area, right? It is a long time. I mean, you, you look at the Silicon Valley, I mean, four years to six years is is a long time, right? And we're talking about a lot longer than that. I think a couple of key things I would attribute it to. One is a customer engagement, right? If your team members are engaged with the customers and the customer is happy with what you're delivering, right? That's what drives them next day to add more functionality and features and so on. So the motivation comes both from a revenue success as well as a customer engagement. And I think the difference in, in Ariaka has been that as a small team, we've been able to retain that team because a lot of these people in, in the engineering and support organization and other organizations have been able to retain and keep customers at a very high satisfaction level. And that sort of goes back to them as a success for what they have done. They see the results of their work. Resilience, of course, is, you know, if we had got the direction wrong and so on and so forth, and we were just walking into a wall, that would have been a different problem. But even if you have a pretty good idea and the product sort of fits the market and the trends and the long-term trends, people need to still be, you know, feel engaged with the long-term vision. You know, I think the observation I have is the team gets on a high with that customer endorsement. It's almost like instant gratification and it wants you to get this new high all over again. And that's a different culture by itself. We talked about the longevity of the company and their endurance and the resiliency of the company. But I also want to touch upon your personal endurance. You know, startups are roller coasters and I'd imagine it takes a toll 
for you to carry the torch for an extended period of time. You've been a constant fixture in the company, even as you know people around you have changed, and you have to keep your chin up, motivate those around you, especially when the going is tough. So what's your formula to do that and any advice to other founders that may be going through the grind, so to speak? You know, I think different founders and, you know, executives at different levels and different functions obviously have very different philosophies of what it takes to keep that company going and and the people motivated, right? For me, I think the most important parameter is uh, transparency and uh, inclusion, right? Every company is going through challenges all the time. The leaders in the company need to have, you know, be included in an honest discussion about some of the challenges and why they're instrumental or they're, they need to be instrumental in the corrective and improvements that would solve these issues and, and get us to the next level, right? So transparency is not just rah, rah, everything's going fine, pat people on the back. It's on the, it's, sometimes it's the opposite. It is uh, saying, hey, here are the problems. We have to face it, but we're facing it together. And, you know, I, I go back to a few times, you know, when we took on a customer, which was much larger than our capacity at the time. We had product, we had people. We backed ourselves. We said that we have the right people to be able to solve issues we will encounter. You know, small companies cannot afford to invest, you know, millions of dollars, and, you know, tens of millions of dollars in building huge test setups. So you have to innovate on how you get that coverage and testing, but you have to back yourselves. And sometimes when things look down, that's when having the right people with the right mindset helps you solve and jump that barrier. When you do that, on the other side, people look back and say, I did that. All of us did it, but I was also part of it. My contribution was, was a mission critical in it. So at that point, the company goes a little beyond financial success, right? I mean, financial success is very important and obviously everybody wants it. But at the end, leaders want to feel that they are making a difference in the journey, not just making a lot of money. I feel that. So that, that to me, inclusion of them in the problems as well as in the success is, is, is really important. And I would imagine some new leaders get made during this process because you're actually allowing them to participate in the problem and stretch way beyond their comfort zones. That is true. You know, uh, I think the companies, generally speaking, go through many, many phases. I guess you start off with a bunch of commandos and then you start converting towards an army. I think if you really look at it, those commandos have to become leaders of individual divisions, if you will, or, or whatever, right? And I think it really speaks to the people in this company who've taken up those the mantle and been those commandos transformed into leaders of larger groups to create more leaders. And it's happened because we were lucky. I mean, our bottom line is, in a sense, 2009 might have been a really bad time to raise money, but it was a really, really good time to get great people because that was a time when, you know, you didn't have a lot of unicorns jumping up and saying, hey, you know, come here and you can make a lot of money. So people were looking for jobs that made them feel satisfied with what they did because the money wasn't the only motivation. That's what I should say. And I think the people that came in and joined forces with you at that time, they also saw a, a mission, a cause, because I, I do see a lot of the people still there with the company. So they have made this cause their own. And it is this culture that you talked about with uh, transparent leadership, which uh, should also be extending to customers as well, because they then believe in, in you and bet on you. Absolutely. And I think that's, uh, you know, we really have to be thankful for one thing that our customers 
we tend to have very high customer loyalty and satisfaction leading to customer loyalty leading to very long retention of of customers right and we're talking not of small customers sometimes it's very large brand name customers who obviously have a hundred different problems to deal with and ariaka is just one of them right and to be able to keep them engaged and say hey, look don't worry i've got this piece covered right is really important for them to feel that they can fight other battles while somebody else is taking care of this one right and i think that's that's we're lucky that it's happened to us we're also lucky as you said a lot of these leaders who we hired at the time they stayed on because as you i think you exactly you hit the nail on the head they feel a part of a journey right of, of making that difference that that mission and so on so when when people take up the mission on themselves everybody is a leader and that's that's really a great system to be in because i don't know whether you really need 200 people to do uh, every problem right i mean there are two ways of solving it with the right leadership and right motivation you can be pretty efficient in what you deliver because everybody's focused on the same sort of goals that's well put ashwath now looking back you know you've done your share of startups what are some of the ones that you would like to talk about as uh, successes and where has an idea not gone where you wanted it to go and as a continuation of that have you experienced uh, any near death scenarios for any of the companies that you were at including arika you know i think uh, near death is a is a fact of life in any startup right i mean we always tend to look at um, some s- symptoms of being successful right but i remember one of the the first year we had i mean ajit gupta was a one of the founders he he had a very very good view of life in a lot of ways right? he said look i mean you should not get lost in what's happening on a day to day basis right because there's a big picture yes we've had many uh, near death experience both in ariaka and elsewhere i think the important thing is that there is another day that follows the day of near death right some of them for example was uh, when our first uh, ceo decided to step down and have somebody else brought in it's just a stage of growth of the company and so on and, and it was quite a shock to sort of lose that you know the, the sort of what happens is an uncertainty right but i think as long as the big picture that is the customer is still engaged right the team is still engaged in the, the and the ship is still moving in the right direction right captains do come and go leaders come and go other leaders always step up so i we've been lucky that the mission has stayed constant focus of a lot of leadership has stayed pretty constant so each of these near death experiences didn't really result in death let me put it that way so you look back and say hey you know was it a near death experience or were we just uh, a little too afraid of what might happen afterwards but really we didn't have to what about some successes that where everything clicked into place big time yeah you know i think success is one of those uh, really really hard uh, because obviously somebody like an elon musk is have pointed everything so there's a lot of success right so we we all so let's let's look at it in our own micro day to day lives i think the basic success in any startup to me is be able to look back after that and say you know i did that and it actually worked and it made some people happy and the people who went along with us uh, the team the team itself did benefit from both the experience and hopefully monetarily also right but uh, that has been more of a guiding principle than to say hey you know this went to a billion whatever right i mean well, of course we all love that but if i look at the last three small companies that i was with the startups and so on I think they all met the goals we started with right 
which was to deliver a product which worked and changed people's enterprises, whatever, right? That changed the way they did business. If you can do that, look back and say, hey, you know what? I'm very happy. I think a lot of us in this team can say that even more so than Ariaka because many of the other startups, you know, you get acquired. Uh, yeah, there's a great monetary success. The question is really, what is the continued influence you have after that acquisition? And, and generally speaking, you know, there's, I would say that in the, in the past acquisition that I've been a part of, the acquiring company sometimes makes a real success of the product. The acquiring company sometimes utilizes all the leadership that's in that company. And, and sometimes they, they fail to utilize it. So, you know, I, I, you lose control on continuing that mission that you started with, right? Sometimes it's a good thing, sometimes a bad thing. And I'd say that, you know, in my case, so one of them was very good and one of them was very bad. But nevertheless, it doesn't mean that it wasn't fun as a journey to get to that point. I mean, success can be multidimensional and you kind of need to enjoy the journey no matter where it goes to truly absorb in the process of the startup. Absolutely. So Ashwit, talk to me a bit about your role as the CTO. How do you view this role and what's a day in the life of a CTO look like? Yeah, this is one of those uh, very, very hard to answer questions because I think different companies have a different need in terms of the role of the CTO. For us, in my last life, if you will, was uh, I was also the CTO and VP of engineering of uh, Legro Systems. It was very different, it was very much a product and engineering and hands-on focused job. I would say in Ariaka, it started that way, but as we reach a point where we, we start scaling and business becomes more important than just product, what I enjoy about my role and what I come to work every day for is being able to, A, keep people motivated about the long-term direction of that ship that we talked about, that mission and so on. That's one on the inside. The second one on the inside, and you know, going back to the first one, there's definitely always doubt. If you knew something for certain, everybody would have done it. So at the end, you've got to have conviction. Your conviction is fraught with doubt, but you just have to believe that you'll know how to get around all those uh, issues that will magnify the doubt. And I think that's one of the things that that's my job, to be able to work with the rank, file, everybody, right? All the leaders at the end saying, hey, we are in this together. Yes, we've got some things wrong. We've got some things right. But this is where we're going and we believe in it. And why? You have to be able to defend it. That's one. The second is, finally, the customer is looking for exactly the same assurance, right? And when you have a large customer, right, they are not customers. They don't view us as vendors. There's a partnership aspect of it because they're, I mean, at an individual level, the careers, but really at a corporate level, their business uh, might not depend a whole lot on us, but we could certainly do a lot of damage if we mess it up. So I think the second part of the CTO's role is to listen to the customers and engage them, but also provide them the confidence, obviously not by just talk, but by, again, being transparent to them where we are, yes, we are not going to be the best at everything, but do we keep their requirements and their most critical business needs in mind when we do anything? And remember, I remember one CIO said to me when we were just about to get the first contract with them. So look, I mean, I am one customer out of a thousand to you, but to me, the work you're doing is my business, is the entire business, you could destroy it, and it's my career. Right. So we actually have a, a bigger impact potentially negatively to, to our customers. So as a CTO, 
we need to be able to not just tell a customer that we're going to cover them. We need to back that up with reality. And what does that take? That actually means sometimes being sitting there on escalation calls often enough and actually understanding that we are participating in making sure that whatever issues came up are going to be resolved or you're going to be very transparent with the customers on where you are and when you're going to resolve. I like two things that you said there. One was there are times when you get doubt and you do need to have the self-awareness and humility to understand it and acknowledge it. The second thing you talked about is really how you take ownership in a way for outcomes with customers. They are taking a risk by betting on you and you need to de-risk that bet in some ways as a as a technology leader. I guess that there's a part of your job that requires you to define the technology vision. But there's also, I guess, another part where you need to get buy-in for that and excite people around it, rally them to the direction of this technology vision. You know, how do you kind of go about doing that? And uh, in this case, you know, you all also have had change of guard with a few CEOs. Does a new CEO coming or going impact the vision as well? Whenever you talk to somebody to come in on, on the executive team, right, they're interviewing you. We just happen to be one of the people they're actually interviewing. So when you look at it that way, uh, you hope, and in general, it's true that they understand what you are and how you work, right? What's your vision, but also how do you work, right? Because at the end of the day, you come to the office, you hire an executive, the person comes to the office, and if they feel that they're not part of the vision, then, you know, pretty soon they're out of the office, right? So I think that the, the biggest part that we've been, you know, transitions happen for various reasons, right? Everybody is not going to scale to all levels, right? And part of my goal is when I have a candidate coming in for an interview, I, I want to be honest about what our successes are and our failures. Right? It's not something that's a very sales-oriented uh, thing saying, rah, rah, let's just come on board. I think people who come on board need to understand that there's good things, which is longer term, and there are some problems which is shorter term and they are part of the solution or they should not be here. And I think we've been very lucky in that. So getting buy-in after that is easy because they're part of the planning and making sure we get past these hurdles. So dealing with new CEOs, it's always hard because when a CEO comes in first, they are also concerned on what they're getting into, right? I mean, you don't hire CEOs if you don't have some changes you want to make. Now, but if they have to come in and make a wholesale change and say, I've got to rip this whole company apart and restart from the beginning, it is demotivating because they you know, took that job without that understanding, right? So it takes a bit of time, but you cross that chasm of doubt on, on you know, of, of looking for issues. And when, when they get confidence, the number one thing that most CEOs have said uh, within a you know, few months is, I don't get onto escalation calls. Why? The customer is happy. So at least there's one major problem they don't have to deal with. That is, have to go and apologize to 100 customers every day, which is the norm when a CEO comes in. So I think we've had it easy in some ways. So the CEO can focus on building the next level of company rather than having to deal with a very more basic customer issues of you know product not working and so on and so forth. So I think our goal has, and we've been lucky on, is keep the product working and the customer happy, solve the bigger problems of, how do you scale and so on? And that's what a CEO comes in. So they're not sitting and focusing on the basics that, you know, that we should have fixed 10 years. 
And that's a fascinating insight. I think uh, we've been lucky with our share of the CEOs as well in the way that they've been able to come and affect those transitions. And I want to take this opportunity to maybe shift from the company building to you as an individual. Obviously, being a CTO of a company or a thought leader in the industry, there are expectations of you know you to keep pace with technology. So what is your modus operandi to be abreast of learning so there's a fresh graduate out of college who doesn't outsmart you? <laughs> so this is, I think, an area which is, to me, it's a very slippery slope for me to even talk about. Of course, these fresh graduates in uh, coming out of college are smarter and they know a lot more about newer stuff, right? So what technology are we in, right? And how important is just technology in the world? So sometimes you're in an industry which is really in the hype phase. I think hype, that the Cardinal graph is very, very nice because when you're in the hype phase, right now it is a bunch of people putting a lot of ideas together and, and some of these are actually going to make it past that chasm, right? But when you're in a little bit more of a mature stage, I think people coming in are great because they bring in new ideas. What really matters is how many of these ideas can actually be put seamlessly and smoothly into a customer's network or environment without causing a lot of hiccups. Hiccups to a customer, their business depends on it, right? So actually, I'm a little bit of a CTO who says, you know, you should not have too much of technology in the sense that there's a maturation of technology. And until it reaches that point, you can't deliver it to all customers. You do want to deliver it to customers who are bleeding edge, but you don't want to take everybody to the bleeding edge because, hey, it causes bleeding, right? So when fresh graduates come in, you know, the best part, you learn that they think out of the box. The methods for development have changed dramatically. So these are areas we need to adapt. You know, we build a monolith software because we say we build it in software and so on. How much API is APIization and so on that we do? They're all newer trends. I mean, they're newer to me is 10 years, right? And we need to adapt and adopt some of these uh, trends that the students bring us. You know, we just had a, a, an intern. He came in for three months. And I mean, it was amazing to work with him on whole concept we had in, in the data detoxification space. There are a lot of smart people. We need to absorb them and help them help us. Am I behind in times? Yeah, sure. But then we should also open our eyes and say, hey, there's a lot of stuff that's coming in there. What can we absorb from these people who have learned this and who think differently from us? I agree, Ashwat. I mean, many of them can be so inspirational and allow us to think from different vantage points, if you will. And I think it's uh, important to blend that with the experience that you bring to the equation experience plus new knowledge is always a very powerful combination. Who else do you look for inspiration yourself? You mentioned Elon Musk briefly. Are there others that you kind of look up to? Oh, you know, I look up to a lot of people. Anybody who successfully pulls off something that you think is impossible from an engineering viewpoint, right? I look up to all, right? And there's a lot of them. Any major product in today's world originates from somebody who really believes something that Others thought were impossible. I mean, I I look at Musk and say, who would have thought you could build another automobile, a car company in this stage and age, right? And he built something and it's something that is changing the game. And who would even have dreamt that a private organization could send a satellite to space? And he's done that, right? And he said, now 
the only people who need to be doing this are private organizations. NASA says, I'm going to subcontract everything to these guys, right? So there are people who have changed the way we think about what can be done. Like, like Musk, Steve Jobs, you know, hundreds of people. And I look at all of them, right? But to me, on a day-to-day basis, right, how many of these people directly influence our business, right? Some, A lot of them influence our way of thinking. But I think in Musk's case, one of the things I believe is that this whole SpaceX and, and Leos, right? I mean, I really look at that and say it's a great technology. And it's a great technology that could have significant impact to our business, which is allow people to connect into their applications much more easily because they don't need a landline, they don't need a lease line, they need to get, somebody doesn't have to build infrastructure in their neighborhood for them to get connectivity to the internet. It's there in the sky. You just connect to it and you can actually get pretty good data rates and you remove the limitation of uh, latency and so on. That was the technology of the past, of satellites in the past. Ashwath, I feel you're being a bit humble yourself because when I look at some of the things that you've invented and you've been a a fairly prolific inventor, I, I think if you search on your name, there are more than 20 plus patents. What is your philosophy behind that in terms of invention, patents, and which ones are your most successful so far? I don't subscribe to patents uh, being really indicative of anything, you know, smart. There are probably a few, you know, one in a hundred patents that actually has some significance and makes a big difference to, to people and so on, right? But every one of these patents, there's a couple of them I think are, are pretty good, interesting patents. They've always come because of multiple people sitting together and, and noodling over a, a set of problems, right? And so it's really not one person. So yeah, my name is somewhere on that list of patentees and I've been involved in them. I think the, the real secret is the stuff that you don't patent. I think that there's much better work that I've been involved with and I've done myself where we don't want to patent this idea because why do you want to tell somebody how to do it? Right? And that's the trade secret. I think the most important thing that really reflects what your technology is doing is if you set out to solve a problem, how are the people who are benefiting from that feeling about it? Right. And that's really relatively, you know, some of those things you patent, some you don't. And so it's incidental to me that I'm on 20 patents. I'm sure there are people who spend their lives uh, getting patents and probably have 200, right? But that doesn't make them any different in terms of solving problems and enjoying the work they're doing. Because I think at the end, that's never going to get disclosed. A lot of people put a lot of great ideas in, but they don't want to patent. And I think you put it rightly, saying it's not an indication of smartness, but the patent portfolio can be valuable to any company. I guess a commercial reason for doing some of these things as well. In a large company, yes. In a small company, defensive. I mean, I don't know if a small company has the money to go and fight a large company unless the patent is so fundamental. Let's say the the infringement is so obvious, right? So, yes, it has value, as you said, because it's it's almost like an asset, but it's not an asset you can easily convert. But you need it in case somebody else uh, is coming after you. Hey, at least you have something to trade. Ashwood, let's shift the conversation away from technology. What do you do to unwind? I know uh, you're a, a licensed pilot as well. So what made you take off to the skies there? <laughs> you know what? I think uh, probably since I was a five or six-year-old child, I think I always wanted to fly or learn how to fly. I mean, ideally, I would someday want to wear a jet suit, put that, those, uh, those wings that people wear and fly around and maybe hang gliding or something like that. But short of getting there, yeah, somewhere around 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, I decided I'd just get a 
private pilot license so that I could, you know, just part of the thing is just to be out in the air and without any controls on, uh, oh, everything's controlled, sorry, but uh, you're sort of in a, in a different world, right? You're looking down on things, maybe that's uh, one way of looking at it, but you're looking at everything on the earth in a very, from a different perspective. So I really love to once a month or so, at least do a, a couple of hour flight. It also gives me an opportunity to visit places I would not normally go to simply because they're too far away. You know, two weekends ago, my wife and I we went down to the Wallowas, a place called Jews of Oregon. We were able to fly in and uh, spend two days doing some hiking. And it was real fun. And it's it's fun also because it's something I, if I had to go there, I would have had to drive 15 hours. And if you ask somebody there, I said, how many people do you see from California? They say almost none. So flying gives me that opportunity, which, which is one of the consequences which I like. Well, every kid growing up wants to become a pilot. I'm glad you kind of fulfilled that ambition. But you also talked about it providing perspective and different people have different ways of trying to get that perspective. You don't need to book tickets either, uh, which is always a, a positive thing. Is this a place, is there a place you go to, fly to when you want to get away and kind of think deeply? Probably, uh, that's a little overrated. I mean, you got to think deeply every day. But yeah, I mean, uh, my wife and I, uh, we travel quite often to, we have a place in Bend in Oregon. And uh, sometimes we just go there, spend a weekend, do some hiking, do some have some good beer, come back. So it's less about thinking deeply. Probably it's a little bit of stopping thinking deeply. Just, uh, the unwind part of it makes, is what we do uh, when we fly out. But, you know, you can do that in any way. It just so happens that, I have a plane. And you know what? It's not something where you say, I'm going to go to Chicago tomorrow morning and you jump on a plane and go. These are not that kind of plane. That is a professional pilot. I'm not a professional or an airline transportation or a pilot of that kind, right? And then that, that requires a very different kind of skill set. This is almost what people call now sports flying, which is you just go casually. Uh, you're able to spend your day on in a day of good weather at a place which you would not, normally not have gone to. That is a a great luxury to have. Now, before we wrap up, Ashwat, I want to have to ask this of a CTO, right? What are some of the technology trends that excite you over the next decade and which ones are you planning to sink your teeth into? So I'll speak first in the context of Ariaka because, uh, hey, a lot of the technology trends that are happening today, you know, they're so broadly spread. I need to pick something that is sort of very relevant to our conversation also. And as I said earlier, that one of them is LEOS. I think this low Earth orbit satellite, if you think about it, it's going to change, I think, the dynamics of the globe. See, today, you can get great networks, 5G and so on and forth in some parts of the world. But what about all those parts of the world where there are a lot of smart people who can do a lot of smart things, but they're not yet included in this whole global economy? You know, parts of Africa, parts of Asia, part, you know, lots of parts of the world where they don't have access. I think the this LEOS technology is going to offer them an equal opportunity to access, you know, to be able to dis deliver what they can do to the rest of the world, right? That's one major. Another big thing that's happening in the world today is obviously, you know, it's not directly something that we participate in, but it's a pace of uh, innovation, right? You know, once you have a large customer base and it, there's only some amount of technology you can push into the system, right? But the pace of development has changed dramatically because of the methodologies that have changed, the leverage and you know, open source was one something people didn't talk of 25 years, 30 years ago. And now it's the only thing people talk of, right? APIs and, and being able to say, look, I offer every piece of work that I do 
as a service to somebody else. And correspondingly, somebody else does that. So now we've sort of built an ecosystem that allows you to build an entirely new product or a system in very little time. That pace of development is probably accelerated by a factor of 100 in the last 10, 15 years. And uh, that's an area we need to start getting a lot more. We need to participate a lot more in even as Ariaka because it changes. It's It's a huge amount of leverage that you can get to scale very quickly. Well, Ashwath, I think we're all going to be very excited about that. And I got to tell you, this is probably the longest podcast we've recorded in the series. You're saying I talk too much. But I found it (laughs) very insightful. And even though I know you, I actually learned more stuff about you today, which is very interesting. And I'm sure our listeners will have some good fun with it and good learning with it. So thank you, Ashwath, for coming on board. And I hope you enjoy the conversation as well. Yeah, thanks, Ashi. That was the... Ashwath Nagaraj, CTO and co-founder of Aryaka. And with that, this podcast is a wrap. Thank you.